Our God in heaven, that is our, our prayer indeed. We're here before you. We long to be with you and long to receive your love. Uh, may we uh, know how, um, how much you love us, how much you delight in us, and receive whatever you have for us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, let's share this screen here. So we're going to still in our series in Philippians, the foundations of a healthy church. We have this week and next week of that part, and then we'll keep reading Philippians for the next part today. And so let's jump right in here. It's in Philippians 1, verses 18 through 26. Philippians 1, verses 18 through 26. If you want to turn there, if not, I will for sure have it up on the screen. Continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. So let's just kind of catch back up to where we've been already and, and what's happening right now. Paul is writing this letter from prison. And while he's in prison, his life is very much in jeopardy, and he's in prison for preaching the gospel. Now, the whole point in this section, his whole desire, what he's trying to communicate to his Philippian audience is to try to shed his really horrendous circumstances in a hope-filled light. His goal is to show them that even if the worst-case scenario happens, that he would die, that it will all turn out for his best interests and for his deliverance, and for their well-being. His biggest fear and concern is that them knowing of his imprisonment and even potentially his future death would discourage them from being faithful, from being confident in Jesus, and would in turn make them withdraw from Jesus and withdraw from the church. His goal is to show them that in all these circumstances, whether by life or by death, Christ will deliver him. It's going to be okay. And so, but as he lays out his case for that, he reveals what I think is a, another healthy foundation of the Christian life and of the church. And that is the goal of the Christian life. What will happen, what our hope is happens to a person and to us when the gospel is announced and then received. So last week we talked about the job of the church being announcing the gospel. This week we're kind of talking about what we hope would happen, what our goal would be should that gospel actually take root in a person's life. What is the hope that will happen there. And he has this in this verse here that I've conveniently emboldened for you, is that Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. The goal of the Christian life is the exaltation of Christ. For Christ to be exalted, it is for his name to be enlarged, for him to be magnified, for Christ to get all of the attention for him to be glorified. It is the answer to the prayer, the first line of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, or may your name be praised. The goal of the Christian life is that Christ would get all the attention, the glory, and the honor that he deserves. And Paul kind of lays out his kind of tension here between the fact that he might die while in prison, or he might go on living, 
And the goal of all of that is that Christ would be exalted. And he's stating that that is possible and will happen no matter what. And as he does this, he kind of lays out why it's so important that Christ would be exalted. And I want to emphasize here that it says he will be exalted in my body. I think this is a great little phrase in my body that's worth taking note of. Sometimes I think the Christian Christians imagine that this whole creation is just going to be erased and is not valuable. It's all broken and torn up. And God is just going to erase it and allow us to fly off into heaven when we die and go be with Jesus. But instead, this is a, a place of the emphasis on the restoration of all creation that is coming. When Christ uh, became a human being, he came to restore creation by becoming creation. And when he rose from the dead, he was the first fruits of a new creation, the start of a process that God would ultimately fulfill in which all creation would be made new. And the first fruits of that, the start of that was Christ's very body being made new when he rose from the dead. And he now has promised that all creation will one day be restored through him. He's not just going to blow it up and go away. He's going to make it all new. And we get to start that process in our very bodies. We all are given a little piece of creation, our very body right now that we have some say over that kind of we get to practice on, practice bringing new creation on. And so Paul's saying that he gets this body right now, whether it dies in the next few months or in the next few decades or longer, he gets to let this body be the new creation space where Christ will be exalted. And so we're going to talk some about what it looks like to, to have this goal of Christ being exalted in our life. So the, the goal, the healthy foundation I'm talking about today is that the goal of the Christian and thus the church is exalting Christ. And the question I want to ask then is what does a life that exalts, exalts Christ look like? I got two points to talk about here. The first one is being with Jesus. What does a life that exalts Christ look like? It looks like being with Jesus. Check this out. So he says, for to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. And he kind of has this debate here. I can either, if I'm going to live on the flesh, that's going to mean fruitful labor for me. He's got more work to do. And I do not know which I prefer. It seems to be that Christ, that Paul kind of is going to have a say. If he kind of presses hard on his proclamation of the gospel while in prison and kind of causes a scene, he might like allow himself to die a sooner death if he takes that route of boldness. He says, I am hard pressed between the two. And he says this, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. And so when he's talking about this debate here in his mind, he's not a death wish, but he's just acknowledging I could exalt Christ by throwing down, preaching the gospel all the harder. And if so, I would die and be with Jesus immediately. And that's better for me. And so he kind of communicates a core central truth about heaven. Heaven is not just, let's go get some pleasure. Let's go relax and kick up our feet and just enjoy all my favorite things filled with chicken wings and Cheetos and favorite TV shows and all of our favorite comforts. The core feature of heaven is being with Jesus. If you don't want to be with Jesus in your life, you're not going to like heaven. Because the core feature of heaven is that you get to be with Jesus without any obstacle, without anything standing in the way. And so Paul imagines his future, why death doesn't matter to him, is because all death will mean is that he gets to be with Jesus without any more obstacle, 
any more hindrance. And so this kind of communicates some foundational Christian theology here that in this life through Jesus, Jesus has abolished the power of sin and death over us. But for a time, the presence of sin and death remain with us in this life. Their power has been broken, but they remain present. And as such, they make, they kind of give us temptations and accusations and make it difficult to experience Christ's presence here on earth. It's tough. And so we long and hunger for the day when even the presence of sin and death would be removed and we'd get Jesus without anything standing in the way. So that's what Paul is longing for. But to me, it communicates something about what an exaltation of Christ looks like right now. And that is the privileging and desire to be with Jesus, to cultivate Christ's presence in our life, and all the more even to, to kind of uh, receive the way in which he has sought to be with us. Uh, Sky Jathani wrote a great book a few years back called With, and one of the things he communicates is that God longs to be with us more than anything more than he wants to just give us gifts from a far away, more than he wants to just receive work from us uh, that we're trying to give to him or serve him, he wants to be with us. When he made Adam and Eve, the primary scene in the Garden of Eden was that God was with them. And then when they sinned, they were separated from him. And the rest of the Bible is just about God trying to get back with his people. Um, he, he spends that time separated from them, and then he pursues and seeks them by uh, getting this relationship with Abraham going in Genesis 12, and he pursues his people over and over and over again. Right now, I'm in uh, that part, or I just finished that part in Exodus, which is like the last half of the book, which is where most of your dreams to read the Bible in a year go to die. When, uh, Moses, when Exodus spends like 20 chapters talking about the temple being constructed, and there's all kinds of things around cubits and materials and how they're going to build this thing. And man, if you're trying to read that early in the morning pre-coffee, it's a, it's a true nap inducer. But the emphasis and why it's in the Bible is because it's emphasizing how crucial it is that God wants to come dwell with his people in a temple. And it's in a tabernacle. They want to make it really well and really, really good because we're remembering that God wants to be with us. He's pursuing them and he's saying, set me up a home and I'll live with you. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God is privileging being with us. And then eventually he becomes a human being in the form of Jesus. And what do the gospels call him? Emmanuel, God with us. And John, he says, the word that made all things became flesh and dwelt with us. Eugene Peterson says he makes a home in the neighborhood. The whole book of the whole Bible is about God longing to be with us, and he goes out of his way and endures great costs to be with us. And then Jesus says, while he's still living, walk around with his disciples, he says, I'm going to die soon. And he tells his disciples, it is better that I'm gone, because when I go away, I'm going to give you the spirit, and he'll be even closer to you than I am, because he will live in your physical body. And so we remember in Acts 2, when after Jesus' was ascension, he sends his spirit to dwell within believers. And he even references that here in this passage, that he will be delivered because the spirit of Jesus Christ will help him. The spirit of Jesus Christ that lives within our physical bodies permanently if we are Christian people. And so we get to spend this life now, a primary way in which we seek a life that exalts Christ is to receive this gift 
that God longs to be with us. The creator of the universe wants to be with us and then to cultivate and practice his presence with us. So it's that in that book by Sky Jathani, he says, the call to live in continual communion with God means that every person's life, no matter how mundane, is elevated to sacred heights. When the spirit of the living God is dwelling in your physical body and is with you all the time, when you're doing the dishes, when you're driving alone, when you're doing something boring and mundane, when you lay down at night to go to bed, when you wake up, he's always there. And that makes your whole life mean something. The times that you think life doesn't matter and I'm bored or this is uh, you know, not as fun or not, I'm not being productive, God is still with you. And he loves that. He delights in being with you. And we get to exalt him by simply receiving that and longing to be with him too. And heaven simply becomes a fulfillment of that longing. We spend a life that longs for, that hungers for, that seeks to find ways to practice the presence of Jesus. And in the end, he gives us just that, life with him eternally. And so I want to spend some time, or just quickly, mentioning a a spiritual practice, maybe, if my slides would keep going. Um, that will help kind of cultivate this. A big thing I want to mention, I didn't, I'm not going to mention this a ton here, but c- the practice of communal worship. So you all being on this call is a huge discipline that cultivates the presence of God. And when we do gather back in person again without hindrance, without any mask and without COVID being around, who knows when that will be. But we long and hunger for that because that is a time that we get to cultivate the presence of God together. But today I want to just mention one briefly. At the end of this call, maybe I want to have room for you all to share uh, what practices you know you get into that cultivate Christ's presence. But just I'm going to mention silence and solitude here. Let's start with this great quote from a 1600, uh, uh, 17th century French theologian and scientist, and he did various other things. He says, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. That we struggle just to be sitting in silence. And when we are alone and in silence, or we are alone, we fill it with noise. We fill it with entertainment, with stimulation, with our phones, with TV, with radio. There's always something to kind of distract us away from the here and now. But to experience the presence of God and his power and to recognize him there, it starts with a discipline to sit still in silence alone. And it doesn't take long for us to realize how challenging that is, but that is the path through which we experience and taste the presence of God. And so you're going to, if you start that practice, you will then experience this quote from Louis Bier. He says, solitude is a terrible trial for it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. It opens out to us the unknown abyss that we all carry within us and discloses the fact that these abysses are all haunted. That sounds terrible. You're like, hey, preacher, you know, that sounds like a good practice, but suddenly I don't want to do it anymore because that sounds really hard. But this is the key to experiencing the presence of God. You sit there in silence and all the things that you're scared of, all the things you're fearful of, the things you worry about, your anxieties come to mind and they may embarrass you. They may give you a sense of shame. They may make your heart beat fast and make you worry. But it's at that point that it's most powerful to remember that God is then with you. And you remember that he has seen and known all those things forever. 
and yet his disposition to you is still found most clearly and most pointedly in the fact that he became a human being and died a gruesome death in order to still be with you anyway. That he has already seen those things that you have hidden from, that we've distracted ourselves from, that we have found ways to avoid and to press down and to forget are there. He has seen all those the whole time, and yet he has still counted us worthy to die for and worthy to dwell within our physical bodies. And is going through that journey of humble, like kind of downward, uh, a, a downward journey to then experience that then Christ is there with us. As Dallas Willis says, we can only survive solitude if we cling to Christ there. And yet what we find of him in that solitude enables us to return to society as free persons. Talk about a life of healing, that you, a life that is spent cultivating a time of silence and solitude to let all the weakest and most fearful uh, parts of ourselves come to light, only to remember that Jesus is sitting right there holding them with us, counting us worthy to be loved, and we cling to him there receiving his forgiveness his mercy, his transformation. We let those things go before him and then we return to normal life, ready to serve and ready to be self-forgetful in our love for other people. This is the kind of, this is what the presence of God does to us. It is not only pats on the backs, uh, you know, from a nice grandpa up in the sky. It's a God who so loves us, but he wants to transform us and wants us to be our true selves before him. So I encourage you to start trying to practice this practice this week. You know, your boy is an, a strong extrovert if you haven't realized that already. And alone time has been hard to come by and to do well for me. So I started when I was like 22. My only goal was like, I'm just going to sit still and drink this coffee without reading anything or having any noise. And I'm just going to see how long I'm just going to do it until my cup is gone. I didn't try to direct my mind toward anything. I didn't try to do anything really spiritual. I'm like, I just want quiet and silence and try to get better at that. And it was hard at first, but you know, God has slowly helped me grow through it. And now, you know, I moved toward having some meditation time where I set a timer and try to just remember that Jesus is sitting before me. I have open hands before him. And that practice has really helped me uh, kind of sense his presence with me, even in the face of, not in spite of, but even in the face of the things about me that I'm most ashamed about. So I invite you to join with me in that practice of silence and solitude experiment. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's not, it's going to be very awkward, but try it and see how God works in you in that. So the first thing about exalting Christ is being with him. The next thing I want to talk about is becoming like Jesus. Jesus ain't the type of friend that once you sit with him, we're just going to sit and consume some TV together. He's not like, we're just going to be together just to be together. When Christ is present, he brings transformation. And the transformation is towards him. He's becoming like Jesus. So check this out. He says, for me, living is Christ, dying is gain. It's the most simple phrase. Living To live is Christ. Living is Christ. That is meaning that Christ is like, the full consumption of his attitude, his personality, what he cares about, what he longs for, what he dislikes, uh, his whole body inside and out, his attitude and goals and perspectives are being shaped by Jesus. He's just being soaked in Christ's presence. And in doing so, 
Christ kind of takes over his mind. It's a process of vacating ourselves out of the center of our lives and putting Christ there instead and letting Christ now reign. Um, so living as Christ is kind of is, is, is kind of the goal of becoming like Jesus. So if I could boil down becoming like Jesus to one word, it's sacrifice. That Jesus had a disposition of sacrifice in which he looked on humanity and on the world and thought of subordinating his own interests for the interest of us, for the interests of others around him towards the kingdom goals. So it's giving up his interests. And so here's Paul. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that's going to mean fruitful labor for me. This sounds like hard work. And I do not know which I prefer. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire, what does Paul want? What would make an easier future for him? It's to die right then and go be with Jesus today. He says that's better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. So he has one choice that benefits him or he has a choice that benefits his readers. And he says, since I'm convinced of this, that it's better for you, I know that that's going to be my choice. I will remain and continue with all of you. Why? For your progress, not his, for your joy in the faith, so that I may share in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. And so Paul is channeling Christ-like self-sacrifice as he's faced with this decision. You can kind of apply that lens to every decision. When you're faced with a choice, you think, what will serve other people versus what serves me? What is for the interests of other people versus what is for my interests? And this is the core of the gospel. You have to realize that as Christian people, everything we have as Christians sits on the foundation that God sacrificed his life for us. For our best interests, he died. For our best interests, he gave up himself. Um, he, he became, he gave up his life as a ransom for many, he says in Mark. And so we're just channeling that self-sacrificial mindset. And so Paul just takes that lens and applies it to his situation. I'm in a hard time right here, he says. My life is difficult. I don't want to be in prison. I don't want to live with fear. It's kind of terrifying. I'd rather just die now and go be with Jesus. But it would be better for you if I find a way to stay alive because then I can serve you. And that will be fruitful labor for me. It's going to take some effort. Now, I realize this has potential for all kinds of lies. One of the lies is that God cares nothing about you. He just cares about what he can do through you. And so sometimes people take this self-sacrifice to mean like self-hatred, and that's not what it is. It's not coming from a place of self-hatred or that you have can have no needs. You know, there's abusive relationships where the the, the thought is you can't have any needs. You only exist to serve those around you. This is not the kind of self-sacrifice that being in the presence of Jesus cultivates. Rather, being in the presence of Jesus makes us so full, so uh, uh, feeling his love and delight in us that we are freed to engage with the world without clinging to what else the world could give us, but instead ready to give ourselves away because that's what Christ has done for us. It's from spending time counting the cost of what God has done for us, that we then are feel freed and empowered to give our lives away. And so sometimes the most sacrificial thing, though, might be rest, because rest would help you remember what Christ has done for you, or other forms of self-care. Now, it's easy for those to be abused uh, selfishly, and we have to be on guard for that and seek accountability for it. But even if rest is seen 
as a way to serve others for the long haul. If I rest well on Fridays, I'm going to serve you better on Sundays. If I make sure I rest well at nighttime, I'm going to be a better dad. When I'm on team no sleep, I'm a worse dad. And so there might be moments of rest and self-care that are not self-indulgent, but are done in order to be more sacrificial for other people. So another lie to to this or a thing that hinders us uh, from engaging in a self-sacrificial lifestyle well is that when we hear that how much effort and work and discipline it's going to cost us, we're like, hang on a second. I thought the gospel was all about grace. Why am I have to do all this work now? And so I love this quote, though, from Dallas Willard that distinguishes between effort and earning. He says, the path of spiritual growth is in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. And you've never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. So he kind of deals with this lie that if it takes effort and is painful and takes some discipline and is hard, then that must mean I'm not receiving grace. Instead, he's noting that if you have received grace, it may lead to sincere effort. That's that fruitful labor Paul is talking about for himself. This doesn't mean you're earning your salvation by being a self-sacrificial servant. It means that you are reflecting your salvation by being a self-sacrificial servant, which is much different from having the thought that I must do this in order to be loved. Remember our last point. God has gone out of his way to give you, give us his presence. We, for free, it's been a gift to us. And from that place, though, he transforms us to become a self-sacrificial person. Another quick lie I want to just mention briefly that can stop us from doing this well is the thought that, like, what's in it for me? I will hate myself and what isn't there parts of me that are worth being affirmed as I kind of give up myself and kind of allow a death to my wishes, a death to, to what I long for. I love this quote from my man C.S. Lewis um, about that very thing. He says, this principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, a death of your ambitions and favorite wishes. My man's British, by the way. That's why he spelled favorite like that. Every day and death of your whole body in the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. He kind of channels the core, uh, a core point that Paul makes in Galatians when he says, um, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I, I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul knows that secret of having been with Christ. He's now ready to exalt Christ by letting Christ shape and form him to become like him. And as he gives himself away, he only learns all the more of who this God is that empties himself and sacrifices himself for our best interests, to serve our needs, to love us well permanently. This is the secret to living that Christian life of pursuing his exaltation by receiving his presence 
and practicing his presence with him and by embracing a self-sacrificial lifestyle out of service to him. As we do that, we show the world that our life is not about us, but about the one who gave himself up for us. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do trust indeed that you are a God who has given yourself up for us. That you became a human being, that you lived a life of service, that you died a self-sacrificial death for our interests to forgive us our sins. May we receive that today. May you overcome every lie innocent around us that will get in the way of us receiving that good news. And may you empower us to experience your presence to live a self-sacrificial lifestyle and to bring glory to your name. When people know us and remember us, may they remember you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're gonna move into a time of communion. If you have any kind of communion supplies, some food or some drink, practice this with us now. I'd realize that practicing communion when alone on a screen is just not the best, but uh, it's important for us to privilege how central this is to our gatherings how central Jesus's physical life, death, and resurrection and real history has made uh, all things new for us. And so this is a passage that I read at the end of every sermon to practice communion. I got to click 90 times to get to my slide. There it is from 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read this. And if you have any communion supplies with us or with you right now, you can take the bread and the cup right after I read this and remember um, Christ's forgiveness for us. It says the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and when he was betrayed and broke, he broke it and said, this is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So take a moment to either take communion or contemplate this communion time. And uh, this is a way in which we practice the presence of Jesus together every week and a way in which we long for him to form us to become like him, to embrace the same sacrifice. So take a moment to reflect on that now. 